What would you do if you discovered that your company was cheating? Not just cheating, but lying. And not just to investors, but to the public. To vulnerable, trusting people who relied on your services to make decisions about their health and medical care. You took this job to help people. Instead, you find that you're hurting people. Worst of all, you know that if you speak up, no one will listen to you. Would you do it anyway? Just to do the right thing? Welcome to Whistleblowers, a Spotify original from Parcast. In this series, we explore the biggest lies in history through the eyes of the whistleblowers who risked everything to expose them. Today, we're telling the story of Erica Chung and Tyler Schultz, the junior lab employees who took on the wealthy and powerful in order to help expose one of the biggest frauds in Silicon Valley. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. In October 2013, 23-year-old Erica Chung started her dream job. The recent graduate of the University of California at Berkeley had spent her whole life working as hard as she could. When she got a job offer from hot biotech startup Theranos, all of that hard work finally paid off. Erica had grown up in a trailer park in Northern California's San Francisco Bay Area. Her father was a hardworking immigrant from Hong Kong, but the family had always struggled for money. Health care and other expenses often fell by the wayside when cash was tight. While she was in high school... Erica decided that she wanted to go to college to study biology. She dreamed of being able to help develop affordable medicines that could make life easier for people in her working-class community. Her parents were supportive, but no one else they knew had continued their education past high school. College wasn't really for people like her. Erica refused to give up. She put everything she had into school— When she was accepted to the prestigious UC Berkeley, just a short drive from her family, it felt like a dream come true. Cal, as the university was known, would open doors to a wider world. She could even go into academia if she wanted. But Cal turned out to be a whole new challenge. As soon as she enrolled in 2009, she discovered that her classes were harder than anything she'd done before. But that paled in comparison to Erica's other troubles. Within her first couple years at the university, she was robbed at gunpoint and sexually assaulted multiple times. As a result, her confidence and mental health suffered. As she struggled just to get by, her grades dropped. She had no choice but to take a break from school. Perhaps college and a career in the sciences really weren't for her. But Erica refused to give up. She had worked so hard to get here. She had to believe in herself just a bit longer. If she finished her degree and it still didn't work out, she would make a new plan. 
By the time she graduated in 2013 with dual degrees in linguistics and molecular and cell biology, she had regained her confidence. And the moment she heard about Theranos, she knew that this was the job she had been working towards. The recruiter pitched Theranos as the Silicon Valley startup that would revolutionize healthcare. They were developing new technology, known as the Edison device, that could run over 200 standard and specialized blood tests off just a finger prick and return results in a matter of minutes. This quick and easy blood testing would democratize healthcare. Theranos had recently opened an affordable testing center in a Walgreens pharmacy near its office in Palo Alto. It had plans to expand to pharmacies across the country. The company wanted to give patients even more control over their own health. Erica loved the idea. If her family had had access to high-quality blood tests without health insurance or doctor's bills, they wouldn't have had to forego health care when they couldn't afford it. People in her community could have caught minor health problems before they became serious issues. But it wasn't just Theranos' mission that sold her on the company. Theranos' founder and CEO, Elizabeth Holmes, was only six years older than Erica. She had dropped out of Stanford, and with Theranos' profile on the rise, she was becoming an advocate for women leaders in science. Erica immediately saw Elizabeth as a role model. Here was another woman in science who had struggled but was now succeeding, and she was dedicating her career to helping people. Being able to work for Elizabeth and help Theranos grow and accomplish its mission was the best future Erica could think of. When she finally got her Theranos badge and walked through the doors as an employee in October 2013, she figured she'd be working there until she retired. As soon as she started, though, Erica found things weren't going quite as smoothly as the recruiter had said. For one thing, she was required to sign extensive and severe non-disclosure agreements, or NDAs. She was also given a list of words she wasn't allowed to use when talking about her work with people outside the company. These included basic terms like pipette and biology. Theranos seemed paranoid about anyone knowing even the vaguest information about how their products worked. That struck Erica as strange. But she'd never worked in Silicon Valley before. Maybe that was just how tech companies did things. When she started her job as a lab associate in the research and development division, though, things got weirder. She worked on the assay validation team, which ran tests on the accuracy of Theranos' proprietary devices. In this case, Erica was working on the Edison. This was the machine that patients at the Palo Alto Walgreens were told their tests would come from. Erica's team's job was to report the results of their sample blood tests back to the engineer's building and refining the devices in order to help them improve. But on the Theranos assay validation team, things seemed to work a little differently. Instead of reporting all the results of the sample blood tests they were running on the Edison, Erica's managers told the team to remove the outliers. And in this case, Outliers seemed to mean any data points that didn't make the Edison look good. 
Because much of the data they were collecting suggested that the Edison wasn't very reliable. To be considered reliable, a blood testing machine had to have a variability of about 10%. That meant that the results were always within a small window of each other, suggesting that the machine returned correct and consistent results most of the time. That wasn't the case with the Edison. To Erica, it sometimes felt like the device was just as reliable as flipping a coin. That wasn't inherently a problem. She figured the machine was still being refined. But throwing out results in order to make the device look more reliable was a problem. It wasn't just bad science. It meant that the company was pretending the machine was market-ready when it wasn't. Concerned, Erica started to talk to her colleagues in the lab. She couldn't be the only one concerned about this, could she? She wasn't. One of her friends in the lab, Tyler Schultz, was a fellow recent college graduate, a 23-year-old biology major from Stanford, and he was equally disturbed by what he was seeing. In many ways, Tyler was Erica's opposite— He'd also grown up in the San Francisco Bay Area, but his family had money, and Tyler had had opportunities Erica could only dream of. His grandfather was also George Schultz, the former U.S. Secretary of State under Ronald Reagan, and it helped end the Cold War. Now, he was a fellow at the Hoover Institution, a conservative think tank on the Stanford University campus. George Schultz was also on the Theranos board of directors and had convinced a number of other big names to join him, including General James Mattis and former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger. He had a close relationship with Elizabeth Holmes, whom he saw as a protege and owned a big stake in the growing startup. If the company succeeded in its projections, George stood to make $50 million dollars. But George wasn't the only one who believed in Theranos' mission. When he introduced Tyler to Elizabeth in 2011, his college-age grandson had been captivated by her vision. The summer before his senior year, Tyler interned in Theranos' lab and switched his major from mechanical engineering to biology. Shortly after he graduated, in September 2013, he officially started a job there. Just like Erica, he figured he'd spend his entire career at Theranos, working to help people and change the world. And just like Erica, Tyler's career there didn't start auspiciously. After just a few days on the job, Tyler's team, the protein engineering team, was shut down. He and all of his colleagues were moved to the assay validation team in the research and development division where they would be running sample blood tests on the Edison. Tyler was excited to finally get to work with the Edison. When he'd been an intern, he hadn't even seen one. But when he did finally get to see one, he was underwhelmed. Theranos' signature testing device was basically just a robotic arm holding a pipette. It hardly looked like the cutting-edge technology that Elizabeth talked about. Shortly thereafter, Tyler found himself expected to cherry-pick data from the sample blood tests he was running and get rid of so-called outliers. That didn't seem right to him. 
and his supervisor from his old team agreed. But what could they do? This was how the assay validation team wanted to run things. Tyler had only been on the team a few weeks when Erica started, and the two immediately hit it off. When Erica expressed her concerns about the lab's practices not long after, it was a relief for both of them to find someone else who felt the same way. They might be entry-level employees, but they'd just spent years working in university labs. The way Theranos was doing things just didn't feel right. The longer Erica and Tyler worked there, the more disturbing things they noticed. For example, one of their team's assignments was to test blood samples for syphilis. They knew that nearly 27% of the samples were positive for the disease. All they had to do was get the machines to consistently return those same results. The first time they ran the tests, Theranos' Edison device returned correct results for just 65% of the blood samples that they knew had syphilis. The next time they ran the tests, the Edison only produced correct results for 80% of the positive blood samples. This unreliability was disturbing enough. But to Erica and Tyler's horror, they discovered that Theranos was telling its corporate partners that the machine was 95% accurate on syphilis tests. They were lying. What bothered Erica and Tyler the most wasn't that the Edison wasn't working yet. It was that the machine was already being used in a pharmacy, and Theranos was telling everyone that it worked, when the lab employees knew that it didn't. In November 2013, less than two months after starting, Erica was unexpectedly transferred to the clinical lab. She didn't know how to feel. On the one hand, it was an exciting opportunity to get to work with patient samples. On the other hand, the signature Edison blood testing machine was unreliable. The idea of using it for patient blood samples filled her with dread. She had to hope that maybe she'd discover something in the clinical lab that would allay her fears. Instead, she found things were just as bad. In fact, despite advertising that the Edison could do more than 200 blood tests, the clinical lab mostly processed patient samples on commercially available machines made by other manufacturers. There were only a few standard tests that they regularly used the Edison for. As a new arrival, Erica hoped she could avoid using the Edison for patient samples for as long as possible. Just a couple weeks later, though, she found herself working in the lab on her own over Thanksgiving. Most of the rest of the team was on vacation. When a request came in from the Palo Alto Walgreens pharmacy to run a standard blood test on an Edison, Erica had no choice but to get to work. She started with a standard quality control test, as usual. This was to make sure that the Edison machines were appropriately calibrated and would return accurate results. But the quality control test failed. Concerned, Erica ran a second one. That failed, too. Erica didn't know what to do. She couldn't run the patient test without functioning machines. She contacted a few supervisors who were on call over the holiday weekend. They gave her a few fixes that usually worked. Erica tried them all. None worked. Finally, someone from R&D who was in the building came down to help. 
They simply deleted enough values to get the machines to pass the quality control test. They then ran the patient test and told Erica to send the results back to Walgreens. Erica was horrified. It was one thing to cherry-pick the Edison's unreliable results in an R&D setting. It was another entirely to send them out to patients. And now she'd just done that. A few days later, a government inspector arrived at Theranos. The company's clinical laboratory certificate was up for its standard two-year renewal. Erica and Tyler were relieved. The inspector would ask to see tests of the Edison, which would quickly reveal that it didn't work. No other patients had to risk getting bad test data. Theranos could fix the problems and everything would be fine. But the inspector never saw the lab. That is, the inspector only saw the upstairs lab. The upstairs lab was where technicians only ran tests on commercially available devices made by other accredited manufacturers. The inspector wasn't told about the downstairs lab, where the Edisons were used. They didn't even know it was there. Erica told Tyler that she suspected it was the company's president and chief operating officer, Sonny Balwani, who had made sure the inspector didn't know about the other lab. Though she'd only just joined the clinical team, she'd already seen how Sonny intimidated and pressured her colleagues. He seemed to be the only one who insisted they send out unreliable results to patients. He belittled people whose expertise Erica admired, telling them that they didn't understand what Theranos was doing. Clearly, Sonny knew that the Edison machines didn't work the way they were supposed to. Erica and Tyler had to wonder if he was keeping the truth from Elizabeth. Her whole pitch was that Theranos' mission was to help people. She wouldn't be telling the world that the Edison worked if she knew it didn't. They needed to tell her. In early 2014, 23-year-olds Erica Chung and Tyler Schultz had been junior lab associates at Theranos for less than six months and they'd already noticed a number of bad practices and problems with the company's technology. They worried that the company's visionary founder, Elizabeth Holmes, didn't know what was going on. That February, they found their opportunity to tell her. When Tyler's grandfather, George Schultz, threw a birthday party for Elizabeth. When Elizabeth insisted that Tyler come to the party, he realized he was in a unique position. He could talk to Elizabeth directly in a way his fellow junior associates couldn't. Besides, his grandfather was on the board. Tyler wasn't someone she could just fire. When he sat down with her for a chat, Elizabeth seemed to take his concerns seriously. But she also reminded him that he was very junior and new. He probably just didn't understand all the nuances of how Theranos worked. She would arrange a meeting for him with a vice president who could walk him through everything. While Tyler waited for that meeting, Erica witnessed something else happen in the clinical lab. Several times a year, the lab had to do something called proficiency testing. This was when accredited organizations sent blood plasma samples out to clinical labs around the country. The labs had to test the samples and return them. 
The results were used to regulate the labs and make sure they were suitable for patient testing. Up to this point, Theranos had been running its proficiency testing on the commercially available machines. Now that they were processing patient samples on the Edison, though, Erica's supervisors had decided that they needed to start doing proficiency testing on those same devices. No one in the lab was surprised when the results from the Edison were way different from those on the other machines. But when the company's president, Sonny, learned what had happened, he burst into the lab furious. If they wanted to keep their jobs, they had to do things the way he'd told them. In the end, he made them submit only the proficiency testing results from the non-Theranos machines. Erica didn't know how that could be allowed. Neither did Tyler. When Tyler finally got his meeting with the VP, he also mentioned the proficiency testing. Instead of taking him seriously, the VP dismissed Tyler being too junior to understand how Theranos worked. As for the proficiency testing, Tyler just didn't know the rules. Tyler and Erica still weren't sure of him, but they had no way to find out. The NDAs they had signed meant they couldn't risk asking anyone outside the company. So Tyler came up with a workaround. He would set up a new email address under a fake name and email a clinical laboratory licensing office that Theranos had done proficiency testing for. Without using the company's name, he would explain what Theranos had done and see what the regulators said. If everything was above board, then no one would ever find out that he had broken his NDA. One Friday in late March 2014, Tyler sent the email to the New York State Department of Health's Clinical Laboratory Evaluation Program. On Monday morning, he got a response. The program's director confirmed his concerns. Based on what he was saying, the lab in question was cheating on its proficiency testing and needed to be investigated further. He could either tell what lab it was, or he could contact the New York Health Department's laboratory investigative unit. Tyler decided to file a complaint with the investigative unit because he could do so anonymously. He wouldn't know if they followed up on it, but there would also be no way to trace it back to him. But he didn't stop there. Tyler decided it was time to tell his grandfather about what was going on at Theranos. After work that very same day, he drove over to his grandparents' house. He explained to the former Secretary of State not just the proficiency testing issue, but also the Edison's unreliability and how the company was misrepresenting its capabilities. Tyler told his grandfather that he didn't feel comfortable working at Theranos anymore. Before he quit, he wanted to make sure George and the rest of the board knew the truth. George urged Tyler to reconsider. Surely Elizabeth could explain what was going on. He trusted that Tyler thought he was right, but he believed in both Elizabeth and Theranos. Tyler loved and trusted his grandfather. If George wanted him to give Elizabeth another chance, he felt he had to do that. So he agreed to meet with her again to discuss the proficiency testing issue. While Tyler was waiting for a meeting, Erica found herself facing yet another problem. 
To her horror, the team had just started using the Edison for hepatitis C clinical lab tests on patient samples. Hepatitis C was a serious infectious disease. Incorrect results could destroy lives. So when Erica was asked to process a hepatitis C test on an Edison, she refused. Fortunately, one of the lab directors was sympathetic. Together, they were able to find a workaround with a commercially available test that Erica felt better about. But when Sonny found out, he was furious. They had to use the Edison. She clearly just didn't know what she was doing. Erica felt like she was trapped. Unlike Tyler, she couldn't afford to lose her job. But she also couldn't do work she believed to be unethical. A week or so later, though, everything changed. Unable to find time in her schedule to sit down with Tyler, Elizabeth asked him to send her an email with his concerns. And so he did. He wrote down everything he and Erica had witnessed. He calculated the accuracy percentage of the tests on the Edison and made graphs to demonstrate his concerns about the device's reliability. He explained why throwing out inconvenient data points was bad science. He expressed his belief that the proficiency testing had been handled in a possibly illegal way. In as dispassionate and evidence-based a way as possible, Tyler presented his case for how he believed Theranos was lying to investors, patients, and the public at large. If Elizabeth didn't know what was going on before, now she did. When Tyler got a response back, though, it wasn't from Elizabeth. It was from Sonny. In his usual vitriolic style, Sonny angrily accused Tyler of having no idea what he was talking about. His claims were outlandish and ridiculous, and he was wasting Sonny's valuable time. The only reason he wasn't firing Tyler on the spot was because of his grandfather's position on the board. Sonny demanded an apology and wanted to hear nothing more of these ridiculous accusations. Well, Tyler had tried. He replied to Sonny's screed by giving his two weeks' notice. But Sonny wanted Tyler out of there that day. That suited Tyler just fine. He printed out the emails, hid the papers under his shirt, and walked out of the Theranos building. He was going to go straight over to his grandfather's office at Stanford and tell him what had happened. But as Tyler walked to his car, his cell phone rang. It was his mother, and she was panicking. Apparently, Elizabeth had already called his grandfather and threatened to go after Tyler if he didn't stop his supposed vendetta against her. Tyler had barely left the company, and already Theranos' CEO was coming after him. That was all the proof he needed that Elizabeth knew about the company's shady and unethical practices. She was trying to attack him through his family, just to keep him quiet. He was going to have to decide whether or not to fight back. On April 14, 2014, Tyler Schultz left his job at Theranos for the last time and headed over to his grandfather's office on the Stanford campus. He knew that Elizabeth had beaten him to the punch, but he had to hope that his relationship with his grandfather was stronger than her lies. George Schultz listened to Tyler's full story, 
He read both Tyler's letter to Elizabeth and Sonny's screed in response, and asked for copies of both. But he didn't seem to make a decision about whether or not he believed Tyler. For now, all he would say was that the Theranos team was trying to convince him that Tyler was stupid. He didn't believe that. He might, however, be persuaded that Tyler was simply wrong. He suggested his grandson come over for dinner that evening so they could discuss the situation further. Right around the same time, Erica was being called into Sonny's office. The Theranos president had apparently reviewed Tyler's emails and figured out that Erica was the person who'd told him about the proficiency testing. Now, when she raised those same concerns with him, he shouted at her. She had been hired to do a job, and that was all she should be doing. She was just a junior employee who could easily be replaced. All Erica could think was that she shouldn't have to take this. Yes, she needed the job, but she couldn't handle this abuse just for trying to hold the company to basic ethical standards. As soon as she got out of there, she called Tyler. She wanted to follow him out the door and quit. But Tyler told her to wait. She should come with him to dinner at his grandparents' that evening. Maybe the two of them could persuade him to help fix Theranos, and then she wouldn't have to leave her job. It quickly became clear, though, that George had made up his mind in the last few hours, and he was on Theranos' side. Lots of very smart people had told him that Theranos was the real deal. Tyler and Erica were bright kids but they were still just kids. Besides, he'd told them that Theranos' Edison technology was being used in the field by the U.S. military. It had to work. Tyler and Erica just didn't have the full picture. The two friends were stunned. There was no way the Edison could be used in a battlefield. Elizabeth must have told George that yet another one of her lies about the company's capabilities. Erica quit the next day. She just wanted to be done with Theranos and its lies. She couldn't keep helping them put patients' lives at risk. She would just have to find another job. Both Tyler and Erica tried to move on. They soon found new jobs at biotech companies with healthier work environments, Still, they stayed in touch. Their non-disclosure agreements banned them from talking about Theranos with anyone else, so at least they could work through the trauma of the experience together. For his part, Tyler wrestled with the fact that Theranos had driven a wedge between him and his grandfather. Erica, meanwhile, struggled with self-doubt. Elizabeth had become a star, gracing the cover of magazines and hobnobbing with politicians and celebrities. Everyone was still touting Theranos as revolutionary. Erica couldn't help but wonder if she was the one who was wrong. As much as both Tyler and Erica wanted to forget about Theranos, it wouldn't leave them alone. Nearly a year later, in spring 2015, they both received unexpected messages on LinkedIn. A journalist named John Carreyrou at the Wall Street Journal was looking into Theranos. He received their names from other former employees. He wanted to know if they'd be willing to speak to him about their experiences. Tyler immediately got on the phone with John. 
It quickly became clear that John already knew about many of the issues at Theranos. What he needed was proof, and a source willing to go on the record. Tyler agreed to help. He sent over the letter he'd written to Elizabeth, as well as Sonny's response. He also included the email he'd sent to the New York State laboratory regulators. And he agreed to go on the record. Someone needed to stop Theranos. He had tried and failed. Maybe John and the Wall Street Journal could do better. Erica, though, wasn't so sure. Sonny had threatened her career when she'd raised her concerns, and she knew how litigious Theranos could be. She couldn't afford to risk her new job or her precarious financial situation. When John came out to the San Francisco Bay Area later that spring, Erica agreed to meet him in person. Over beers in Oakland, John told her what he'd already learned about Theranos. As she listened, Erica breathed a sigh of relief. The reporter already knew about many of the company's major problems. Clearly, a number of her former colleagues had trusted him. More importantly, though, he was taking the issues seriously. He agreed with her that Theranos' behavior was unethical and, in some cases, illegal. She had been right to try to push back. Theranos, Elizabeth, and Sonny were the ones in the wrong. Erica agreed to help John as much as she could, even though, unlike Tyler, she didn't have a paper trail. She wanted to do whatever she could to expose Theranos and make amends for the harm she had done while working for them. For the first time in a year, both Erica and Tyler felt like things were looking up. Their consciences were clear, and Theranos would be held accountable. A few weeks later, on May 27, 2015, Tyler arrived at his parents' house for dinner. But his good mood evaporated when his father angrily asked if he'd been speaking to a Wall Street Journal reporter about Theranos. His grandfather had just called. Elizabeth knew Tyler was talking to John Carreyrou. If he didn't want to be sued into oblivion, he needed to meet with the company's lawyers the next morning to sign some paperwork. Stunned, Tyler called George and asked if the two of them could speak that evening without lawyers. George agreed. Tyler went over to his grandparents' house. When George confronted him about Elizabeth's claim, Tyler denied it. He knew there was no way that Theranos could prove that he'd spoken to John. In that case, George said, Tyler wouldn't mind signing a one-page document essentially saying he would never speak to a reporter. Theranos knew the Wall Street Journal was doing a story and wanted to protect its so-called trade secrets. Tyler agreed. That would at least buy him time until the morning. Instead, George told him that there were in fact two Theranos lawyers upstairs. Tyler could sign the document now. George had completely disregarded Tyler's request to speak without lawyers. When the lawyers came into the room, they of course wanted Tyler to sign way more than a one-page document. In fact, they were planning to take him to court. When Tyler again denied having spoken to a reporter, one of the attorneys shouted at him, as if he were a hostile witness on the stand. Furious, George kicked the lawyers out and called Elizabeth. 
They agreed that a different lawyer would return the next morning with a one-page confidentiality document, as originally planned. But the next morning, the same lawyer showed up. And once again, he had way more than just a one-page document. In fact, he now also wanted Tyler to sign a document giving the names of everyone he knew who had spoken to John Carreyrou. Again, Tyler refused. As they haggled, Tyler announced that he wanted a lawyer to review the confidentiality agreement for him. While his grandfather went upstairs to fax the document to his estate attorney, Tyler ran into the kitchen and called the attorney before George could. As soon as Tyler had explained what was going on, the estate attorney told him to come to his office immediately. Tyler shouldn't sign anything until he'd had more thorough legal advice. Over the next few weeks, it became clear that Theranos intended to sue Tyler if he didn't do exactly what they wanted. Not just that, the company also wanted to go after his parents and include any potential heirs in the lawsuit too. Even if they didn't, his parents still might have to sell their house in order to pay his legal bills. Soon, Tyler's lawyers warned him that Theranos was having him watched and followed by private investigators. Everywhere he went, Tyler found himself looking over his shoulder. It freaked him out to know that people were spying on him. He became increasingly paranoid and began sleeping with a knife within reach. Worst of all, he couldn't talk to anyone about what was going on for fear that Theranos would find out and go after them too. He wanted to talk to Erica, but he didn't dare put her at risk. He couldn't even talk to his parents, except through their lawyers. Tyler had never felt so miserable or isolated. As much as he wanted all these problems to just go away, though, he couldn't give Theranos the satisfaction. He knew he was right. He wasn't going to let them bully him into submission. Unbeknownst to Tyler, Erica was in a very similar position. One evening in late June 2015, a month after Tyler was ambushed at his grandfather's house, Erica was working late at her new job. As a few of her colleagues were getting ready to leave, they insisted that she leave with them and let them walk her to her car. There was a guy waiting in the parking lot. He'd apparently been there all day and had asked if she was there. As Erica and her colleagues left the building, the man got out of his SUV. He ran over to them. Without saying anything, he handed Erica an envelope, then immediately drove off. When Erica looked at the envelope, her blood ran cold. The address on it was one that not even her own mother knew. She had been temporarily staying with a colleague for the last two weeks while she was in between apartments. The only way someone could know that address was if they had been following her. Erica panicked. She almost didn't care that the letter threatened to sue her for revealing trade secrets and defaming Theranos. All she could think was that someone was watching her. Terrified, she called a lawyer. The lawyer suggested she contact a regulatory agency. Doing so could also help her get whistleblower protections. None of this had ever occurred to Erica. She had no idea there were even options. 
She mostly just wanted Theranos to leave her alone. But she also didn't want them to continue their unethical practices. If only she could talk to Tyler and see what he thought. But he wasn't returning her calls. So, one day, she showed up at his house with a lamp on the pretense of giving it to him. Seeing her, he freaked out. He made them go to the woods behind his house so that no one could spy on them. As the two friends caught up on their respective situations, Erica realized that she was on her own this time. Tyler was going to keep fighting as long as he could, but he couldn't risk exacerbating his legal problems. That September, Erica wrote an email to the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services, the federal agency responsible for regulating Theranos' clinical labs. In her letter, Erica laid out her concerns about Theranos' clinical laboratory equipment and practices. She wrote that she was ashamed that it had taken her this long to file her complaint, but that she felt she needed to make amends for the harm she had potentially caused patients while working there. A few days later, the agency, also known as CMS, conducted a surprise inspection of Theranos' labs. Less than a month later, in October 2015, John Kerry Rue's first article exposing Theranos' fraud was published in the Wall Street Journal. The story became the first of a cascade of exposés revealing the dark truths about the hot startup. The bombshell story didn't just shake Silicon Valley. Major figures in government, military, and business had been taken in by Theranos' con. People across the country who had used Theranos' services had had their lives and healthcare decisions affected by bad blood tests. At first, Elizabeth fought back, trying to reclaim Theranos' image. But by March 2016, CMS informed Theranos of plans to revoke its clinical lab certification. It was also going to ban both Elizabeth and Sonny from running clinical labs for two years. Shortly thereafter, the Federal Securities and Exchange Commission began investigating Theranos for its shady business practices. By the end of the year, the company was mired in both lawsuits and criminal investigations. By late 2018, it shut down completely. Simultaneously, Elizabeth and Sonny were both charged with fraud. In January 2022, Elizabeth was found guilty on four counts. As of June 2022, Sonny's case has not yet gone to trial. As the truth came out, the story captured the American public's imagination. Everyone wanted to know how someone could have gotten away with a fraud this extensive. Where Elizabeth had once been a figure of admiration, the public now became fascinated with her lies and manipulation. Her trial was covered breathlessly by the press and social media. Shortly after the verdict came down, a fictionalized TV series about her and Theranos called The Dropout was released. Throughout it all, Elizabeth maintained that she was always trying to help people. For Tyler and Erica, the Wall Street Journal article and everything that came after was a relief. Not only did it mark the end of Tyler's legal battle, but it also validated all of their struggles. They had stood up for the right thing and won. 
For two years, they had both feared that money, power, and bullying would prevail. They were just two kids whom no one wanted to listen to. Tyler's own grandfather hadn't believed him. In the end, though, people did listen, and things changed for the better. As hard as the experience was, it ultimately restored both of their faith in the biotech startup world's ability to do good. Even Tyler's grandfather ultimately came around. It took George another several years to let go of Theranos, Elizabeth, and the money he might have made had it been real. At a family event, after the full extent of Theranos's fraud had been revealed, George told everyone how proud he was of Tyler for standing up for what he believed in. However, George never did apologize to his grandson before passing away in 2021. Tyler was able to make his peace with that and move on from Theranos. Both he and Erica have gone on to work with other startups to continue to find ways to help people and make the world a better place. They're also both outspoken advocates of ethics in the industry, which is an ongoing challenge. And, of course, they're still friends. Thanks for listening. You can find all episodes of Whistleblowers and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. We'll be back next week with a new episode about the world's biggest lies and the people who expose them. For more information on Erica Chung, Tyler Schultz, and Theranos, amongst the many sources we used, we found John Kerry-Rue's book, Bad Blood, extremely helpful to our research. Whistleblowers is a Spotify original for ParCast, produced in partnership with Stable. Executive produced by Drew Cole, Max Cutler, Becky Jacobs, and David McGuire. Developed for podcast by Julian Boireau. Written by Kate Thorman. Produced by Alice Homewood. Mixed, mastered, and sound designed by Rowan Bishop for Stable. And hosted by me, Pat Rodriguez. Hold up. 